0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, first, All the Lives We Are, a poem about dairy farmers and grocery lists.
1: My name is Dasha Kelly Hamilton and I am the poet laureate for the city of Milwaukee and for the state of Wisconsin. This poem is called All the Lives We Are. The dairy farmer replied stop calling things that aren't milk milk. The newspaper series was compelling even to a city chick like me. I add oat milk to the grocery list anyway. I think of the dairy farmer. The journalist earned awards. Delivery person trades text with me, exchanging broccoli sprouts for bunches. Or did I order that by mistake? I tipped him 15%. Sometimes I tip 20. Every time is the goal. To not hesitate or have to calculate, project out for 30 days the same way, surely he will. I wonder if he does his own shopping in between or on other days i thank him wave through the screen a woman sits in his passenger seat winter coat open attention on her phone i wonder if she rides often all the time after a fight could be his best friend like my daughter's best guy friends from high school their small colony of peers crossing over the gritty sands into maturity the cicadas are coming this year billions according to the news I am intent to obsess over both groups of new adults. I shuttle the groceries from the porch to the kitchen.
0: And thank you, Dasha Kelly Hamilton and the Academy of American Poets. And next up on Arts Express...
2: Butakum, you never made it. I'm saving myself for when I get married.
3: You're saving yourself for when you meet a rich daddy. You don't talk to me like that, Duke.
2: Roger, I'm ready for bed
4: white noises.
3: Where did you first meet your husband?
4: Oh, in school. We were kids together. We went to some dances and fell in love. It's like a bath, in. Oh, no thanks. I got my hair wet. I guess it's too not.
2: How do you know? How long does it take? You want me to hold her while she screams? You're gonna take it for yourself, aren't you? Nobody's gonna take nothing.
0: And those were scenes from Private Property, the nineteen sixteen noir classic with intimations of incendiary class divisions in this country, and starring the late actor Warren Oates, most known for Sam Peckinpah collaborations, The Wild Bunch, and Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, and now a remake of Private Property, starring Shiloh Fernandez and Ashley Benson, a new cast, but with those persistent themes of class antagonisms, though with racism now added to the toxic mix. First, some scenes from this private property, then the star, Shiloh Fernandez, breaking it all down.
4: I
2: always just did whatever I wanted. Because I was young and I didn't care.
4: You're gonna have to promise me something. What? But you won't call the cops. Um. Uh, Miss Carlisle? Mrs. Ben Saunders. Gardener extraordinaire. Ready to get started. is a little out of your league, don't you think? Here's some advice. All things in this world are divided into groups. Do not mix your groups. Look, I don't have anything. And I see your house and your car. You have all these beautiful things and they aren't being taken care of. You have no idea what it means to a guy like me to take a dip in a private pool. I'm in love with you. It's all a game. It's the whole world. I'd like to report an illegal alien in my neighborhood.
3: You want something that doesn't belong to him.
2: What? You.
4: You kind of overstayed my welcome. Maybe you should go. Do you want me to?
2: Hi, and
0: welcome to our show.
4: Thank you, Perry. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay. Now, in private property, most of the actors like yourself are playing actors in Assuming Other Identities. What can you say about that and the challenge of actors as actors within a movie, aspiring actors, or those acting pretending to be someone else?
4: yeah that's a that's a great question we 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 discussed that a lot with uh with our writer director chad harbold about how everybody in this film is acting in one way or another and and of course you know the movie sort of uh is based in hollywood and there there's a you know a producer and an aspiring actress as um main characters in the film and then of course my character and the character that I, that I sort of bring along, Logan Miller, we are also playing characters, right? We're, we're all actors, and the world is a stage. It's a little bit of Shakespearean there. And, uh, you know, I can't speak for Ashley and her challenge of sort of opening the movie as a self-tape, but we all know that, you know, over the years of, of doing this, uh, we've all had to audition for things. We've all been rejected, and, uh, and so I'm sure that for her... There was something to pull from from her own life, you know, of uh, not getting the call, not getting the role. Um, And, uh, you know, something that we really talked about um, for my character, even maybe more than hers, though she's playing the actress, was how much I do have to act in this film as somebody that's not myself, as, you know, a manipulator, as somebody who, you know, is pretending to be somebody he's not. That's a great question.
0: Now you portray a working class character in private property for better or worse. how would you say your own background working as a dishwasher and stock clerk before led you to figure out your character, Duke, and get inside his head?
4: yeah you know i um I grew up uh in a rural town in northern California um, and uh, you know it was one of those places where you sort of got to finish your dinner plate before you stand up. Um, <laughs> so i really understand uh you know this even the line of you know you have all these nice things and you don't take care of them you know i uh i still have a have an issue of not not finishing my plate and sort of uh you know believing in sort of hard work and doing it by yourself and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and uh i think that uh you know um i also love gardening and though though my character's probably maybe not all that he says he is. Uh, I sort of love that part of it for myself. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I understand having to do whatever you have to do to, to make a living, to, to put food on the table, to, um, you know, to, to, to put a roof over your head, uh, all those things that are, um, challenges for, you know, the 99%, uh, I, I understand. And, uh, it certainly was something that I, loved uh, to portray. And also, you know, um, unfortunately, my guy wasn't a good guy. But yes, he does come from that world, you know, and it was fun sort of building out the backstory of what else he might have done uh, in his life before getting to this particular place in time.
2: And
0: private property has all sorts of elements touching on class, race, sex, immigration, and economic disparities. What are your thoughts about that?
4: yeah that that was something that we really tried to sort of incorporate in this remake version you know um and it's a it's it's a it's a fine line but sort of touching on those things and not only making a, a really taut and uh and uh sort of uh incredible thriller but at the same time having sort of a cultural uh touchstone and things that were talked about that um are relevant in today's you know world um I think that you know there was there was a lot of uh conversations about all of that, you know, and making sure that, that, um, that we were touching on it and, and doing it in the right way. And, uh, you know, me, me having the last name of Fernandez and sort of calling in this person, uh, calling in sort of ice and getting this person deported. And and then also, um, you know, speaking Spanish a couple scenes later, you know, there's a lot of sort of mystery within that. Um, but I, I love films that are, um, you know, that, that, that are sort of Uh, two-sided and and I think this film is too where where you can take it at face value and enjoy the thriller aspect or sort of look deeper and find all those class things and even in the title of private property it says a lot so I'm I'm glad you picked it up on that
0: and when you were speaking Spanish there were no subtitles what were you saying
4: (laughs) gosh I uh haven't seen the movie in a while um I think I was, you know, doing what my character does best, which is just manipulating this guy in whatever way, and, and sort of lying to him and saying, "You know, "Your boss sent me to take your truck. I need to borrow your truck, and uh, we'll return it later, or something like that. Um, but uh, that was a, a buddy of mine who played the, played the gardener, and I had to really help him with his Spanish because he I don't think he really spoke Spanish too well. Um, so that was really a fun, a fun scene to do with my friend.
0: And how do you see this film reflecting the current state of this country today in terms of a growing economic conflict driven by those disparities?
4: Yeah, no, you're right. And and it's not just that, but I think there's also um, a sort of great allegory of of, of COVID and this, this female being in this huge house, but feeling super lonely, you know, and uh, I think that there's something to connect with there as well, of just, um, you know supposedly having a lot and uh, the fact that it doesn't even make you happy, you know, that, um, that you can feel so small in these big places and, and that it's really hard to connect with people and people are feeling very alone today. Um, that was, you know, I, I give credit to, to, to Chad, our, our writer-director, um, and his sort of point of view on that and him, him touching that. You know, I mean, for me as an actor, I sort of show up and, and uh, try to sort of serve him as the best actor I can be. Um, and he's the sort of genius behind it whose, uh, you know, point of view we're all sort of trying to get behind. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 I do really appreciate the sort of duality of that, that, that there's not only films that um, can can shock you or be scary or be sort of sexy or whatever the, that is, but that there's a larger conversation behind it. And uh, that's what you've picked up on, which I really, really appreciate.
0: And you're working on another film right now, The Old Way, starring Nicolas Cage. What's it like working in a movie with Nicolas Cage? And what's he like on the set?
4: <laughs> Man, I, I, I wish I had more stories. But I, I'm, I, in this film, uh, I don't want to give too much away. But basically, I didn't get to um, work with him for whatever reason until the very last day. Uh, so, and without giving anything away... You know, he is obviously one of the great actors of all time, and he is, uh, he can go big and he can go subtle, and and this role was something that, um, though I didn't get to see him in it because our characters just didn't cross paths throughout most of the movie, um, it was really sort of understated, and so I'm really excited to see it because um, I think he really sort of challenged himself and uh, will show a side of himself that that maybe we hadn't seen before, Um but uh you know i'm just I, I have to do another one with him because literally our characters don't meet until the end of the film and that's the way that we shot the movie so i'm so all my friends are very disappointed with me that i don't have better shot <laughs> nick cage and i'm very sorry so i'm going to have to uh track him down and say nick we got to do another one where we actually interact
0: and any last word about private property
4: well i i think that you know you really nailed it prairie and i'm really happy that you you did because i think this movie you know, will be thrilling as the trailer shows, but it's also um, sort of a psychological thriller that um, really is made by a real filmmaker who uh, was going for something um, a little subversive. And uh, and so I think that, you know, this movie will surprise people all across the sort of board who will enjoy this movie uh, if they give it a chance and go see it.
0: Okay. Thank you so much, Shiloh Fernandez, for calling into our show.
4: Appreciate you, Prairie. Thanks.
0: And while private property out now in release is that rare Hollywood movie actually talking about class divisions in this country, predictably the villains are assigned as usual to the working class characters. And why, no surprise, a given until the U.S. working class controls the means of Hollywood production and those movies get to be made by the working class, not for them. And coming up on the show, In this week's Arts Express Best of the Net Hotspot Cancel Culture Uncanceled episode, The Youth Report, stifled young voices in cyberspace addressing war on the planet they will inherit with no say about their future. Here's Brian Berletich for the new
5: atlas on extremism, Buffalo and Ukraine. I don't normally talk about the internal political affairs of the United States, even though I'm an American citizen. I haven't lived in the U.S. pretty much my entire adult life, and for good reason. As a matter of fact, for reasons like this mass shooting in Buffalo, New York. This was a neo-Nazi white supremacist, a racist with a Nazi black son. Logo on his body armor. He went into a supermarket and just senselessly Murdered people just going about their daily routines. This could have been you or me Or someone that you loved and cared about Dead gone never coming back Because some maniac with this ideology floating around in his head went unaddressed And was allowed to fester in our midst Worse still uh, is not the fact that the U.S. is, is not going to do anything serious to uh, address this. Worse still is the fact that this toxic ideology that infected this killer who killed these people in Buffalo, New York, they are encouraging it, enabling it, and exploiting it elsewhere. In Ukraine, that same black sun that this killer was wearing on his body armor when he killed those innocent people... that supermarket in buffalo new york that is the same black sun that adorns the uniforms of azov Battalion nazis a unit an official unit in ukraine's armed forces this was his manifesto this killer that was the front page the black sun this is the logo for the azov battalion in ukraine that the us right now is sending billions of dollars in in weapons to to keep them fighting That same Black Sun can be found on uniforms all across Ukraine's military. This was a Getty image right here, Getty images. This is a Ukrainian soldier, there's the Black Sun, a Nazi emblem on his uniform. To get an idea of how serious the West is about addressing Nazism. Modern day Nazism, modern day Nazism that is getting people killed in Ukraine and now just got 10 more people killed in Buffalo, New York. This is how serious they are. This is uh, the voting in 2014 on this, combating glorification of Nazism, neo-Nazism, and other practices that contribute to fueling contemporary forms of racism, racial discrimination, xenophobia, and related intolerance, 115 yes, 3 no, 55 abstain. That seems like a very easy thing to say yes on. And uh, who said no? This was in 2014. Canada. Canada said no. Ukraine obviously said no because they are run by Nazis. And the United States. Other nations abstained. The UK abstained. Germany abstained. A nation incapable of learning from its past mistakes. Canada might surprise some people, but it doesn't surprise me. Look at this. CTV News article. Far right extremists in Ukrainian military bragged about Canadian training report says. Look at the look at the image closely. That is the same Wolf's angle that the Azov Battalion operates under. So that there's a serious Nazi problem, not just in Ukraine, but across the entire West. And more specifically, the United States and its closest allies, the United States, who can't even say yes let's combat the glorification of nazism they can't even condemn nazism they're surely not going to take any serious steps to stamp it out and so they have been flooding ukraine with weapons and training and encouraging the nazis there and now you're getting this blowback just like after the syrian conflict the u.s and its allies arming training backing extremists there And then the extremists ended up carrying out attacks all across the West, getting Westerners killed as well. It ended up becoming a global problem. And now they're doing the exact same thing with Nazis. And why why is the West backing all sorts of extremists, whether it's uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS or these Nazis in Ukraine? Why do they do that? Because these extremists are willing to steer a nation in a direction normal, rational people will not. The U.S. had to overthrow the Ukrainian government in 2014 because the Ukrainian government was rational and wanted to do business with both Russia and the West. They were happy to do business with both and remain balanced in the middle. The U.S. said, no, we want to transform Ukraine into a proxy that we will use against Russia. You have to find extremists to make that happen. And if you cannot find enough extremists, you create them. That is what the U.S. did for the last eight years, these extremists were waging a uh, a campaign of terrorism, torture, and mass murder against the Russian-speaking population of Ukraine, up to the point where they were waging what was essentially open war against the people of the Donbas region. That's why Russia's in Ukraine. And that same toxic ideology just drove a man to kill 10 innocent people in Buffalo, New York. These are where the battle lines are. Figure out which side you want to be on.
2: What do Well, when I look over my shoulder, what do I see? And when I look over my shoulder, some ancient fellow
0: And what you've been listening to Season of the Witch The 60s progressive rock classic Created by Donovan And reimagined and reinterpreted Dramatically and symphonically By Vanilla Fudge And a state of affairs Where nothing much has changed Season of the Witch Then and now And coming attractions on Arts Express.
4: I wanted Ukraine into NATO.
5: I thought for a while Russia would be more cooperative and then Putin changed dramatically.
2: Your mission is to destroy as many Russian troops as you can Lavo O'Brien and Alexis. Bring
3: him on. I'm very proud of you.
0: Yes, the Russian prankster seemed to be at it again, cornering George Bush. Stay tuned, and all will be revealed. And now on Arts Express...
3: this is Jack Shalom. It's May and we have a bit of an unusual reading today. May brings up thoughts of May Day and Revolution and Karl Marx's birthday, May 5th, 1818, so I thought it might be worthwhile to read from the surprisingly readable Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. It was written almost exactly 175 years ago. 1848, but the impact of its ideas are still being felt. Marx and Engels had put out the pamphlet in order to make the ideas of the Communist League, a secret communist society, more public and to sway the members of the League itself to a more specifically Marxian analysis of society. Written on the eve of the revolutions of 1848, which swept just about every country of Europe with a mixture of anti-monarchical, reformist, and pro-worker rebellions, Marx felt that it was time for communists to declare exactly what they stood for, and moreover, to give proletarians hope for the upcoming battles. Marx begins the Manifesto with the famous lines translated generally into English as a specter is haunting Europe, though the very first English translation by Helen Macfarlane has it translated with the delightful formulation of a frightful hobgoblin stalks throughout Europe. The Manifesto goes on to explain that a whole range of authorities, from the Pope to the Tsar, have blamed recent uprisings on communists secretly stirring rebellious actions. But Marx says communists no longer should be secretive but put their ideas out into the open that indeed one of the most important things that revolutionaries can do is to join up with others to make revolution. Their most important idea was that stated at the beginning of the very first chapter of the manifesto. That is, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. The manifesto explains that throughout history, a minority class who had control of the means of production and thus life itself sought to maintain their control even though it was at the expense of the majority. And so the history of the world is about the attempts of one class to maintain that control of the economic levers of production while another exploited class tried to overthrow it. But, says Marx, the contradictions in any oppositional system contains the seeds for its own transformation. The manifesto explains how the feudal lords controlled the serfs and then how a new class, the bourgeoisie, inevitably arose. As the bourgeoisie gained more power, they inevitably upended and overthrew the feudal lords and monarchy. In a sense, the bourgeoisie had played a revolutionary class role in relationship to the old feudal lords. But Marx and Engels said that just as the contradictions of feudalism gave birth to a new class, the bourgeoisie, the triumph of the bourgeoisie in itself created new contradictions and created a new class that had never existed before, the proletariat, those whose existence depended on their selling their labor power to the bourgeoisie. So let's pick up the story from there. I'll be reading an excerpt from the manifesto starting at the point where Marx and Engels start talking about this new proletariat class. In proportion, as the bourgeoisie, that is capital, is developed, in the same proportion is the proletariat, the modern working class, developed a class of laborers who live only so long as they find work and who find work only so long as their labor increases capital. These laborers who must sell themselves piecemeal are a commodity like every other article of commerce and are consequently exposed to all the vicissitudes of competition, to all the fluctuations of the market, Owing to the extensive use of machinery and the division of labor, the work of the proletarians has lost all individual character, and consequently all interest for the workman. He becomes an appendage of the machine, and it is only the most simple, most monotonous, and most easily acquired knack that is required of him. Hence, The cost of production of a workman is restricted almost entirely to the means of subsistence that he requires for his maintenance and for the propagation of his race. But the price of a commodity, and therefore also of labor, is equal to the cost of its production. In proportion, therefore, as the repulsiveness of the work increases, the wage decreases Nay, more in proportion as the use of machinery and division of labor increases, in the same proportion, the burden of toil also increases, whether by prolongation of the working hours, by increase of the work exacted in a given time, or by increased speed of the machinery, etc. Modern industry has converted the little workshop of the patriarchal master into the great factory of the industrial capitalists. Masses of laborers crowded into the factory are organized like soldiers. As privates of the industrial army, they are placed under the command of a perfect hierarchy of officers and sergeants. Not only are they slaves of the bourgeois class and of the bourgeois state, they are daily and hourly enslaved by the machine by the overlooker, and above all, by the individual bourgeois manufacturer himself. The more openly this despotism proclaims gain to be its end and aim, the more petty, the more hateful, and the more embittering it is. The less the skill and exertion of strength implied in manual labor. In other words, the more modern industry becomes developed, The more is the labor of men superseded by that of women. Differences of age and sex have no longer any distinctive social validity for the working class. All are instruments of labor, more or less expensive to use according to their age and sex. No sooner is the exploitation of the laborer by the manufacturer, so far at an end, that he receives his wages in cash... Then he is set upon by the other portions of the bourgeoisie, the landlord, the shopkeeper, the pawnbroker, etc. The lower strata of the middle class, the small tradespeople, shopkeepers, retired tradesmen generally, the handicraftsmen and peasants, all these sink gradually into the proletariat, partly because their diminutive capital does not suffice for the scale on which modern industry is carried on and is swamped in the competition with the large capitalists, partly because their specialized skill is rendered worthless by the new methods of production. Thus, the proletariat is recruited from all classes of the population. The proletariat goes through various stages of development. With its birth, begins its struggle with the bourgeoisie. At first, the contest is carried on by individual laborers, then by the work people of a factory, then by the operatives of one trade in one locality against the individual bourgeois who directly exploits them. They direct their attacks not against the bourgeois conditions of production but against the instruments of production themselves. They destroy imported wares that compete with their labor. They smash to pieces machinery. They set factories ablaze. They seek to restore by force the vanished status of the workmen of the Middle Ages. At this stage, the laborers still form an incoherent mass scattered over the whole country and broken up by their mutual competition. If anywhere they unite to form more compact bodies, this is not yet the consequence of their own active union, but of the union of the bourgeoisie, which class, in order to attain its own political ends, is compelled to set the whole proletariat in motion, and is moreover yet, for a time, able to do so. At this stage, therefore, The proletarians do not fight their enemies, but the enemies of their enemies, the remnants of absolute monarchy, the landowners, the non-industrial bourgeois, the petty bourgeoisie. Thus, the whole historical movement is concentrated in the hands of the bourgeoisie. Every victory so obtained is a victory for the bourgeoisie. But, With the development of industry, the proletariat not only increases in number, it becomes concentrated in greater masses. Its strength grows, and it feels that strength more. The various interests and conditions of life within the ranks of the proletariat are more and more equalized in proportion as machinery obliterates all distinctions of labor and nearly everywhere reduces wages to the same low level. The growing competition among the bourgeois and the resulting commercial crises make the wages of the workers ever more fluctuating. The unceasing improvement of machinery, ever more rapidly developing, makes their livelihood more and more precarious. The collisions between individual workmen and individual bourgeois take more and more the character of collisions between two classes. Thereupon, the workers begin to form combinations, trade unions, against the bourgeois. They club together in order to keep up the rate of wages. They found permanent associations in order to make provision beforehand for these occasional revolts. Here and there, the contest breaks out into riots. Now and then, the workers are victorious, but only for a time. The real fruit of their battles lies not in the immediate result, but in the ever-expanding union of workers. This union is helped on by the improved means of communication that are created by modern industry and that place the workers of different localities in contact with one another. It was just this contact that was needed To centralize the numerous local struggles, all of the same character into one national struggle between classes. But every class struggle is a political struggle. And that union, to attain which the burghers of the Middle Ages with their miserable highways required centuries, the modern proletarians, thanks to railways, achieve in a few years this organization of the proletarians into a class and consequently into a political party is continually being upset again by the competition between the workers themselves. But it ever rises up again stronger, firmer, mightier. It compels legislative recognition of particular interests of the workers by taking advantage of the divisions among the bourgeoisie itself. Thus, the Ten Hours Bill in England was carried. Altogether, collisions between the classes of the old society further, in many ways, the course of development of the proletariat. The bourgeoisie finds itself involved in a constant battle, at first with the aristocracy, later on with those portions of the bourgeoisie itself, whose interests had become antagonistic to the progress of industry. At all times, with the bourgeoisie of foreign countries. In all these battles, it sees itself compelled to appeal to the proletariat, to ask for its help, and thus to drag it into the political arena. The bourgeoisie itself, therefore, supplies the proletariat with its own instruments of political and general education. In other words, it furnishes the proletariat with weapons for fighting the bourgeoisie. Further, as we have already seen, entire sections of the ruling classes are, by the advance of industry, precipitated into the proletariat, or at least threatened in their conditions of existence. These also supply the proletariat with fresh elements of enlightenment and progress. Finally, in times when the class struggle nears the decisive hour, The process of dissolution going on within the ruling class, in fact, within the whole range of society, assumes such a violent, glaring character that a small section of the ruling class cuts itself adrift and joins the revolutionary class, the class that holds the future in its hands. Just as, therefore, at an earlier period, a section of the nobility went over to the bourgeoisie, So now, a portion of the bourgeoisie goes over to the proletariat, and in particular, a portion of the bourgeois ideologists who have raised themselves to the level of comprehending, theoretically, the historical movement as a whole. Of all the classes that stand face-to-face with the bourgeoisie today, the proletariat alone is a really revolutionary class the other classes decay and finally disappear in the face of modern industry. The proletariat is its special and essential product. The lower middle class, the small manufacturer, the shopkeeper, the artisan, the peasant, all these fight against the bourgeoisie to save from extinction their existence as fractions of the middle class. They are therefore not revolutionary, but conservative. Nay, more, they are reactionary, for they try to roll back the wheel of history. If by chance they are revolutionary, they are so only in view of their impending transfer into the proletariat. They thus defend not their present, but their future interests. They desert their own standpoint to place themselves as that of the proletariat. The dangerous class, the social scum, the lumpen proletariat, that passively rotting mass thrown off by the lowest layers of old society, may here and there be swept into the movement by a proletarian revolution. Its conditions of life, however, prepare it far more for the part of a bribed tool of reactionary intrigue. In the conditions of the proletariat, those of old society at large are already swamped. The proletarian is without property. His relation to his wife and children has no longer anything in common with the bourgeois family relations. Modern industrial labor, modern subjection to capital, the same in England as in France, in America, as in Germany, has stripped him of every trace of national character. Law, morality, religion are to him so many bourgeois prejudices behind which lurk in ambush just as many bourgeois interests. All the preceding classes that got the upper hand sought to fortify their already acquired status by subjecting society at large to their conditions of appropriation. The proletarians cannot become masters of the productive forces of society, except by abolishing their own previous mode of appropriation, and therefore also every other previous mode of appropriation. They have nothing of their own to secure and to fortify. Their mission is to destroy all previous securities for and insurances of individual property. All previous historical movements were movements of minorities, or in the interests of minorities. The proletarian movement is the self-conscious, independent movement of the immense majority, in the interests of the immense majority. The proletariat, the lowest stratum of our present society, cannot stir, cannot raise itself up, without the whole superincumbent strata of official society being sprung into the air. Though not in substance, yet in form, the struggle of the proletariat with the bourgeoisie is at first a national struggle. The proletariat of each country must, of course, first of all settle matters with its own bourgeoisie. In depicting the most general phases of the development of the proletariat, we trace the more or less veiled civil war raging within existing society up to the point where that war breaks out into open revolution and where the violent overthrow of the bourgeoisie lays the foundation for the sway of the proletariat. Hitherto, Every form of society has been based, as we have already seen, on the antagonism of oppressing and oppressed classes. But in order to oppress a class, certain conditions must be assured to it under which it can at least continue its slavish existence. The serf in the period of serfdom raised himself to membership in the commune, just as the petty bourgeois under the yoke of feudal absolutism, managed to develop into a bourgeois. The modern laborer, on the contrary, instead of rising with the progress of industry, sinks deeper and deeper below the conditions of existence of his own class. He becomes a pauper, and pauperism develops more rapidly than population and wealth. And here... It becomes evident that the bourgeoisie is unfit any longer to be the ruling class in society and to impose its conditions of existence upon society as an overriding law. It is unfit to rule because it is incompetent to assure an existence to its slave within his slavery, because it cannot help letting him sink into such a state that it has to feed him instead of being fed by him. Society can no longer live under this bourgeoisie. In other words, its existence is no longer compatible with society. The essential condition for the existence and for the sway of the bourgeois class is the formation and augmentation of capital. The condition of capital is wage-labor. Wage-labor? Rest exclusively on competition between the laborers. The advance of industry, whose involuntary promoter is the bourgeoisie, replaces the isolation of the laborers due to competition by their revolutionary combination due to association. The development of modern industry, therefore, cuts from under its feet the very foundation on which the bourgeoisie produces and appropriates products. What the bourgeoisie therefore produces above all is its own grave diggers. Its fall and the victory of the proletariat are equally inevitable. You've been listening to an excerpt from The Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller.